Hello and welcome to Here Now, a Whitechapel Gallery podcast that delves into the stories behind the exhibitions on view at the gallery here in the heart of East London. Each episode invites a curator to be in conversation with artists, collaborators and other thinkers about the works and themes explored in the displays, giving you special access to the ideas that shape the artworks. My name is Jane Scarth, Curator of Public Programmes, introducing you to today's episode featuring Whitechapel Gallery curator Laura Smith in conversation with Whitney Hintz, curator of the Hiscox Collection, about a new display of work selected by the artist Sol Calero. They consider Calero's immersive installation, comprising a brightly coloured, densely hung environment, celebrating the natural world, featuring artists including Pierre Abad, John Baldessari, Ito Barada, Annie Leibovitz, Pablo Picasso and more. The exhibition is free to view in Gallery 7 and is on display from the 19th of May until the 15th of August 2021. Hello everyone, I'm Laura Smith and I'm a curator here at Whitechapel Gallery and I was really excited to curate, along with Whitney Hintz, the selection of works from the Hiscox collection for two exhibitions here at Whitechapel. As Whitechapel doesn't have its own collection, each year we invite different collections, usually those that are not easily viewable in the UK, to be kind of a collection in residence, and we'll curate two or three displays from that collection over the course of a year. This year, the collection we are delighted to be hosting belongs to the Hiscox Insurance Group, which has a very interesting story. It was begun in 1970 by Robert Hiscox, who wanted to introduce art to his offices as a way of offering his employees something to stimulate, excite, interest or distract them. And the collection has grown since then. It now, 50 years on, consists of almost 1,000 works of art by international contemporary artists. And with no work ever in storage, it's a very hard-working collection. It appears in offices around the world, above photocopiers or on meeting room walls, enlivening the working environment of Hiscox employees at all levels of the company. So for the two displays at Whitechapel, we were thrilled to bring these works that are never seen outside of the Hiscox offices to public view. And we thought it would be great to invite two artists who have work in the collection to curate the two displays. The first of these artists was the British painter Gary Hume, whose exhibition ran towards the end of last year and whose print series The Sister Troupe is in the collection. And the second artist, whose exhibition is opening soon, is the Venezuelan-born, Berlin-based installation artist and painter Sol Calero, whose painting Solo Pintura is in the collection. For her exhibition, Calero has created a unique environment, one that celebrates both the natural and the domestic realms as it explores ideas around collecting and the objects that we choose to surround ourselves with. Calero's own work takes the form of large-scale, brightly coloured installations that investigate themes of representation, identity and migration, informed by her own perspective as a migrant. She employs a number of visual stereotypes related to the popular imagery of Latin America, such as the colourful patterns and tropical motifs that her paintings and murals brim with. In her exhibition at Whitechapel, Calero has selected from the Hiscox collection luscious images of trees, flowers and seed heads, 
vast ocean and mountainscapes, verdantly coloured maps and depictions of contested lands. She presents these alongside paintings of bright brick walls, open windows, sculpted chairs, tufted rugs and ceramic jugs and vases. Her display examines the differences between our relationship with nature and the home and the structures that we build to live inside. Envisioning her exhibition as a total installation, Calero has created the architecture of a house within the gallery. In this new space, she creates the feeling that we are in someone unknown's private collection, exploring their highly personal environment. Calero has arranged her selection of works into three areas which expand on this theme. The areas are architecture, landscape and interior, and they're signalled by three differently coloured walls. The yellow walls of the installation represent the outer walls of the house or its facade. They contain works of art with architectural references that welcome us into the space. Christo and Jean-Claude's wrapped Reichstag is just waiting to be revealed, while the bold geometric structures in Sarah Morris's large abstract painting and the intimate origami forms of Abigail Reynolds' collages both seem to unfold the notion of architecture and open up the walls of the house. Meanwhile, views of doors and windows from Tal R, Howard Hodgkin and Nancy Milner remind us that we are still outside, persuading us to venture a step within. Richard Hamilton and John Ridley hint at the notion of what we may find inside. As Hamilton explains, any interior is a set of anachronisms, a museum with the lingering residues of decorative styles that an inhabited space collects. Banal or beautiful, exquisite or sordid, each says a lot about its owner and something about humanity in general. They can be dreary or warm and touching, on occasion inspiring, all tell a story and the narrative can be enthralling. Some even give us a little lesson in art appreciation. The two long green walls of the existing gallery represent for Calero either outdoors and nature. They present depictions of landscapes as though we are looking out of the house through a series of windows. John Baldessari's work signifies the line between the architectural area and the images of landscapes, offering a poetic approach to humankind's relationship with nature. Andrew Cranston, Polly Apfelbaum and Gil Hector Cortesau present luscious and joyous celebrations of the natural world. Ito Barada and Richard Moss similarly present beautiful photographs of nature that are in fact created in complex territories with tumultuous histories. Barada's photographic practice documents her native Tangier and explores the impact of unchecked urban development on nature, as well as the subtle local forms of resistance against it. Moss uses obsolete military surveillance technology, a type of infrared colour film called Kodak Aerochrome, to investigate ongoing conflict in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Originally created to detect targets for aerial bombing, Kodak Aerochrome film registers a spectrum of light beyond what the human eye can see, rendering foliage in vivid hues of lavender, crimson and hot pink. The pink walls of the installation create the interior of a house, generating a very domestic feeling. Together the works inside form a personal collection of objects, a home. 
This may be an unfinished home, a home under construction, or one that has recently been abandoned, as several of the works appear to be placed provisionally and the paintwork is deliberately unfinished. Here the selection of works is more intuitive. Joan Miro's exuberant tapestries become blankets or rugs. Picasso's vases are almost given back their functionality as vases, and intimate portraits by Noah Davis, Chris Ophelia and Annie Leibovitz could be personal snapshots of friends and family members. Mark Camille Shamovitz's exquisite collages celebrate both the politics and the playfulness of personal interior decor. And this quote from him became a guiding principle for Calero in her organisation of the exhibition. He said... I organise space to deal with questions related to identity, to gender, masculine, feminine, and to politics. The 70s were deeply politicised. My select political position was summarised in the formula, personal is political. I subscribe to that idea that our internal behaviour can have a political dimension. I'm now joined by Whitney Hintz, curator of the Hiscox Collection. And I thought we could start with asking you how you go about curating a growing collection of over a thousand works. It changes over time, but we've always had a very informal approach to curating the collection. And when Robert was still buying for the collection, it would be very much led by him and his eye and his interests. And I would spend a lot of time looking at work on my own and then presenting it to him and we would eventually one out of 10 suggestions would get past him and so it was it was very much steered by him and now that he's uh, not involved I have more input in what gets acquired but I think we really look at where we're buying the work for which office which location we buy works for each office that reflect the office in some way so for in Germany, we have a beautiful Candida Hofer, who's a German photographer, so she, it sits in our, in our Munich office. Equally, the, the photograph is of the Louvre, so it can easily go to our Paris office as well. So we try to have some ties to the office in some way by buying work by artists who are from the country the office is in. And how do the employees in the various offices around the world respond to the works? And how often do you change them and move them from office to office? I say about once a year I move things in each office, but it's, again, very fluid. It depends on what's happening within the company. If we're opening up a new office, it will then lead me to move other works around. If we're loaning works, I'll move things around, or I'll take a view each year and look at which works haven't moved in a long time. But everyone likes change. Everyone seems to appreciate a turnover. They want new things to look at. Then there's also people who just don't want to let go of certain works. I know I'd, I'd be met with resistance if I move certain things around, like the Canada Hoffer, for example, that I mentioned earlier. Munich does not want to let go of that. So I try, yeah, I try to move things often because it helps create a more stimulating environment and um, it's good to refresh things and people appreciate it. Let's talk a little bit about the two exhibitions. I guess first, how do you feel about the very different Gary Hume's exhibition is very different to Sol Calero's. Just a bit about Gary's. Gary's exhibition was called Accelerate Your Escape and it took its title from one of the works in his collection, which was a print by Heim Steinbeck that said the words Accelerate Your Escape. And for him, it was a, it was a very poetic and 
elegant, quite calm installation um, of 27 works that offered for Gary moments of escape from the everyday, either through melancholy or through excitement or through beauty. And for him, he sees art as a means of escape. On the flip side, Calero's exhibition is very densely hung, very brightly coloured. It contains nearly 70 works. And so I wonder how you feel about the two exhibitions and their differences. I love their differences, and I'm really pleased by how different they are. And I think that's what I was hoping for when we invited both Gary and Sol to do it. I think, you know, with Gary and his practice, I expected it to be very elegant and restrained, and, and it was. It was minimal, but he had this way of choosing works which had been in the collection for years or were necessarily not kind of the show-stopping pieces in the collection, humble works. He was able to sort of elevate them and, and create these connections, which I hadn't noticed before. So that was really exciting to see, and I really enjoyed that. And I loved the way he spoke about the works and why he chose them. And he's, he was very elegant and offered really great insight into his choices. And so I, I thought that was a really beautiful presentation. And with Seoul, having just seen it, I, I'm really excited by it because it's what I wanted. I wanted something very playful, uh, very uh, colorful and, and vibrant, and it's eclectic. And she's also, it's sort of shown the breadth of our collection, the, you know, the variety and the density of our collection too. And it's just, it's quite bonkers. And I love it for that. I think it's, it's really fun and playful. And I think it also reflects the collection well um, in that sense. Yeah, I think she's definitely, for, for me, both of them have created really, uh, really clever exhibitions. And there was a moment when we were bringing in the 70 works that Sol had selected for that one gallery. And I had some anxiety about they, how they would all hang together, but she's been really, really smart in the visual uh, connections between works as well as the metaphorical and political connections. And I think the density, it doesn't feel overhung, it doesn't feel too dense. It somehow all sits alongside each other and tells the story that she wants it to tell. No, definitely. And again, I felt your anxiety as well, shipping all these works over, and I just thought there's no way that they were going to fit. Seeing how full Gary's felt. You know, Gary's felt like a complete show. It didn't feel like it, it was lacking in anything. It felt very complete. And, you know, she has, what, four times as many works? And so I... And I wanted that to be really busy and uh, in contrast to Gary's, but it really doesn't, again, doesn't feel overwhelming. It doesn't feel like it's, it's too, too much. And, um, and you're right, the connections that she's found between works that have never hung side by side is really exciting to see and very clever and very subtle. And it's just a, a very interesting way of, of presenting the works and showing the works that I wouldn't have, you know, expected. Have... Either of the exhibitions or both of the exhibitions made you see the works differently? Have they revealed new things to you about the works? Yeah, completely. With Souls, I have to spend more time looking at it. But certainly with Gary's, as I said, he was able to elevate certain works that I think were in the collection for a long time and had been overlooked or didn't get as much attention. And one of them, the sort of the star of the show for me was the small Alison Wilding sculpture 
because it had been in the collection well before I started. Um, I think we bought it sometime in the 90s. And it's a very unusual piece that's sort of abstract, architectural. It's cast resin. It's very unusual looking and it had been sitting for a long time in a meeting room on a side table, on a sideboard, which often gets um, used for teas and coffees. And it wasn't on a plinth, that didn't have a lot of space. It was largely ignored for many, many years. And then Gary chose it and he put it in the show and he, and he put it in this plinth and it sort of sat standalone and it just transformed for me. Mm-hmm. It was just become like this sort of beguiling, um, seductive, curious object. I remember when we were installing, we all all of us with Gary said it felt like something from Indiana Jones. It felt like... A kryptonite. <laughs> yeah, or like if you touched it, the walls of the gallery would start moving in on you. Or this, it, it felt like it had some kind of magical power. It's, it's so unusual. And so Alison Wilding, for me, was a real surprise to see it out of context, given the space it needed, and it transformed. Yeah, I think it's one of the things that I find really interesting about your collection is when we came to see the works in the London office. They're surrounded by people and computers and snacks and movement. And then we brought them into the gallery setting, which has a lot less visual noise and actual noise. And it really made some of the works, I think, sing or shout even, like The Wilding became a much more powerful work. And I think it's interesting then what Sol has done in that she's created a very different environment. She's created a domestic environment. So Gary embraced the gallery environment and we kept all the walls a very pale grey and everything was was very white cube. But with Sol, she's then created a home for the work. So it again pulls them into a different context. And I wonder if, if that again changes your reception of any of the works. Like when we saw the Miro tapestries... When we saw them in the Hiscox offices, they were hanging on the walls, like tapestries often do. But in Sol's exhibition, she has transformed them into... One is a bedspread, almost, Mm. on a kind of bed size and level plinth, and the other is a rug on the floor. And I wonder if that gives those works a different dimension to you, or the way that she's used Jenny Spota's sculpture, which resembles a book on her bedside table to be an actual book. It's very clever. I would never have thought she would do it that way. And actually, when when we talked about the show, she had the works on the floor. And I thought that was interesting, but I didn't really, I didn't realize she was going to use uh, one of the tapestries as a bed covering. I think that's very clever. And it does change the way you look at it. The book on the bedside table is just brilliant. I mean, you know, the work is flat. We're peering over it. And it looks like a book open on the bedside table. I walked in the room and just saw these, all these objects that are so familiar to me and in a totally new environment and hanging next to different pieces. But I was sort of taken back by that. And then, and then I sort of settled in and started to see, oh, yes, this is the layout of a bed. This is the bedside table. This is the, the sort of the decor behind it and, or you know, the arrangement of ornaments, I guess, behind it. So it, it became much more... I got the picture of it being a room. So there are three Chrysophilly portraits and a big photograph of Louise Bourgeois by Annie Leibovitz. And when we were speaking to her, she was saying, 
it was as if they are family snapshots. So it's potentially the home of somebody related to the people in the Chrysophily portraits. And maybe Louise Bourgeois is the grandmother, <laughs> which is a terrifying thought. <laughs> um, but it's a very playful approach to, to the idea of portraiture and to kind of reclaiming the people in the images. Yeah, and it works. It's very, it's very successful in that sense. I, again, wouldn't, uh, didn't, n- never looked at those works in that way. Mm. So seeing it in that, on a wall, in a home, it makes sense. I think one of the brilliant hangs, a choice she made, was to hang the Ali Zatouni piece, um, the collage that's made up of uh, cut-up Alpen cereal boxes, and it looks like a rosette window. But I just think it's very clever. Mm-hmm. It feels... And it allows her to really use the height of the gallery, to, yes. which I think is why the, the room doesn't feel so dense, is that... Put, putting the zatuni so high like a stained glass window then allows her to use the height elsewhere and to hang other works higher than we would ordinarily. Yeah, and you're, oh, you're looking up, you're looking down. I mean, there's work everywhere. It's not obvious right away. You know, once you're in the room, you see more and more pieces. Um, they're on the ground. They're towards the ceiling. So I, I, she used the space really well. Everything is there for a reason. Mm. It's been really thought through. Yeah, careful. Yes. Outside of the exhibitions, I, I've always wanted to ask you whether you have favourite works in the collection. Not one, because that would seem unfair, but are there any works maybe that you wish Gary or Sol had selected and didn't? Or are there any works that you they did select and you wish they hadn't? Oh, I can't answer that one. That would be <laughs> horrible. I have a lot of works that I love, and they change... They change every year for some reason. And I, you know, and not like I fall out of love with them, but I just, there's a new work that kind of takes its place, maybe. Mm. But I was really happy that there were certain pieces that did get chosen that I am very fond of. One is the Jim Lambie seatbelt mm. chair, which is just, is just such a brilliant piece. It's so fun, it's so clever, it's playful. And I'm, I'm really glad that made it in. The other one was that. In Gary's show, the Nan Golden self-portrait, mm. which is on the other end of the spectrum, which is very it's sort of introverted, it's quite poignant, mm. it's evocative. I'm really glad that made it in too, and that was a, a more recent purchase. Mm-hmm. So I know I don't reg- I don't I don't regret that there that certain works didn't make it in. I think it was very much I, f- I feel like Gary justified every choice he made. Mm-hmm. And I liked that the choices he made were were unexpected mm. and weren't the well-known, most um, expensive pieces. They were each selected for a very good reason. They all fit in together. And I, I feel the game was, was so Calero. She, she has more range in, in the choice of work. I look at Gary's selection and say, oh yeah, I understand why he chose mm. that. I think I get it why, you know, like mm. I can see why he'd be into that work. Whereas with Soul, I think it was much more open-ended. Like there was, it was, could have been anything. Yeah. But then they all now, seeing them together in the room, I'm like, oh yes, I see, the, I see this interior, exterior mm. idea. It comes through in a lot of the works. Actually, the one, another work I didn't mention, which I've loved for years, is the John Riddy's photograph, mm. the Utrecht. It's just it's such a gorgeous photograph. It's just beautifully composed. It's of um, the Utrecht house. Mm. There's no figure in it. It's, it's, em- it's empty um, and still, and it reflects the design and style of, 
of um, the Gestille architecture beautifully. And I loved how she's put that with uh, Richard Hamilton's print. Again, they've never been shown together and I think it's, it was just a really clever pairing. When I asked about uh, works that are included that you wish weren't, I didn't mean you to be mean. Uh, <laughs> I was more, I was thinking of the Bermuda map, which Sol has included. And I know, well, you told me that some of the staff in the Bermuda office, where it was, were really reluctant to see it go. Oh, yeah, I think, and I, I was really reluctant to send that, ship that over because it was a pain. <laughs> Um, but I, and I had never seen that before, so I didn't know much about that, that map and its origins. I was surprised when that work uh, was selected and I approached the office to have it shipped over and they were, yeah, there was resistance. And I, and in a way, I think that's great that they feel that strongly about certain yeah. things and, and that people do not want to let go of it and, and, you know, it shows that they like it. And they're also, the, the, it happened with a couple other offices too, they, we're like, well, when are we getting it back? <laughs> and how long for? Mm-hmm. And so there's there's a there's a possessive aspect to it, which is I'm glad to I didn't realize, and I'm glad to know about. Yeah, I think with the with the map, it's I love it because it kind of situates Sol's house, the house that she's created geographically. So it, it's sort of we can imagine that that house is in Bermuda. Um, and I think that's why she chose it. That's why it was important to her. But sorry to the Bermuda office. Thanks for listening to this episode of Here Now. You can find all of our other episodes online at www.whitetemplegallery.org, on the Bloomberg Connects app, as well as iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher and SoundCloud. Don't forget to visit the exhibition Desde El Salon, Sol Calero selects from the Hiscox collection, on display from the 19th of May until the 15th of August 2021. Bye for now.